Please open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. We begin our study of the life of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Tonight we study verses 1 to 29. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, 2 Chronicles 29, 1 to 19. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment and of hissing as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers, and to make offerings to him. Then the Levites arose, Mahath the son of Amasite, and Joel the son of Azariah, of the sons of the Kohathites. And of the sons of Merari, Kish the son of Abdi, and Azariah the son of Jehalalel. And of the Gershonites, Joah the son of Zimmah, and Eden the son of Joah. And of the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri and Jewel. And of the sons of Asaph, Zechariah and Mataniah, and of the sons of Heman, Jehuel and Shimei, and of the sons of, and the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah and Uziel. They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron. They began to consecrate on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of the Lord. Then for eight days they consecrated the house of the Lord, and on the sixteenth day of the first month they finished. Then they went into Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils, and the table for the showbread and all its utensils. All the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign, when he was faithless, we have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we are reminded by your word that we are a present representative of an ancient lineage, your covenant people. And we thank you for the word that you give us that tells us of how you worked in previous days and of heroes of the faith. 
that brought reformation and you gave revival. Uh, Father, make us wise unto our own salvation as we consider this passage tonight. May your covenant not only be in Hezekiah's heart, but also in ours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. By any measure, King Hezekiah of Judah was one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. He was born into a deplorable situation. That's true politically. It was true militarily. It was especially true spiritually. The, the, he, Hezekiah succeeded in restoring the strength of his nation, and he did it by restoring the people to the Lord. It was a remarkable achievement. Now, his father, King Ahaz, had committed apostasy by selling his devotion to Assyria's king Tiglath-Pileser III, and the chief price tag was the incorporation of paganism and idols into the very house of the Lord. They literally rearranged the interior of the temple of the Lord to suit the abominable worship of the Assyrians and of, of Syria. And the result was sheer disaster. We saw in the previous chapter, their army was shattered in battle. And one occasion, 200,000 people, that's a lot of people now. It was a staggering part of their population then, was carted off into an exile, anticipating greater exiles to come. The house of David was turned into a petty vassal of an evil empire. Moreover, Ahaz's influence had trickled down into society. Andrew Stewart writes, the wickedness of Ahaz had poisoned the spiritual life of Judah. The vast majority of the people were coldly indifferent to the things of God. Very much in that respect, like our times. And with so little interest in the Lord and with this regime, the doors to the temple were actually closed. The ministry of the Levitical priests ceased. The, 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 the menorah lampstand was not lit. The bread was not placed on the table of showbread. The ministry was brought to an end. Now that Hezekiah immediately and vigorously addressed this profound malaise, Restoring Judah to the Lord and to a fair portion of its former power represents a staggering achievement. John Olley refers to his reign as a burst of light after the dark chaos under Ahaz. And because of his zeal for the Lord and his successful reformation, there's a sense in which Hezekiah particularly is the chronicler's model king. We always want to remember that this book is being written, 475 B.C., to the community coming back from Babylon to reestablish the the worship and the life in Judah. And there's a real sense in which Hezekiah is the one he really wants to put his finger on. After David and Solomon, he gives the most and most fervent attention to this member of the house of David. Well, scholars struggle to pinpoint the precise years of Hezekiah's reign. That's in part because there seems to have been a co-regency overlapping with Ahaz. But the best estimate sees him ruling Judah from 715 B.C. to 687 B.C. So that's about a, a, a century before the eventual fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. He's three generations before the prophet Jeremiah, as we think of our morning series and the series of events that would lead to the breaking of the Old, country, old Covenant and the, the Babylonian captivity had been set in motion by his father, King Ahaz. It initiated a crisis which Hezekiah, more than anyone else, would work to delay. He is best known, I think, for his appearance in the book of Isaiah and also the, the military achievement uh, that's recorded in the book of Kings. 
701 BC is one of those dates that should stick in Christians' minds. That was when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and overran Judah and he besieged Jerusalem. And you may remember the Rebshakeh came and he mocked the Lord and uh, uh, guided by the prophet Isaiah, this king took his prayer before the Lord. He laid it out before the Lord. One of the great prayers of the Bible. It's in uh, Isaiah 36 and 37. And God answered that prayer. The angel of the Lord appeared and 185,000 of the enemy host were slain in a single night. Uh, Hezekiah has been important to archaeology lately uh, because one of the things he did, it receives a little mention in the Bible, was he actually diverted the streams of the pool of, of the, the brook Hebron so that the water supply would come inside the city that becomes the pool of Siloam that features so heavily in the gospel accounts of Jesus. Archaeologists have found the tunnel they dug, and it is virtually a wonder of the ancient world. It is long. I forget how long it is, but it's really long. It's cut, it's cut through stone. They started on both ends work to the middle. Think about how hard that would be today. And they, they, they nailed it. They hit it perfectly. Uh, he was a genius in so many of his works. You might Google Hezekiah's tunnel. But the chronicler is interested in his spiritual and religious reform. That's what the focus was on in this book. His reform of Judah's worship and faith. Because as the chronicler sees it, this is so much of the point. Every other blessing in society, economy, uh, a flourishing culture, uh, security and strength, it all must rest on the nation's relationship to God. That's where the emphasis is going to be in Second Chronicles. Now, it's with this perspective in mind that the chronicler introduces Hezekiah with the usual kind of information. He was 20 years old when his reign began, and he reigned for 29 years, and his mother was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, verse 1. Now, what stands out is the next statement. It's actually a very singular accolade in verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. Now, if you've been following along, you may realize that's the first time those words have been spoken. After David, you have, he, he, he did some of what the Lord, what David had done. He was sort of in the spirit of David. He began well, but then didn't continue well. He alone is called one who in all that he did was like David. David was the man after God's own heart. Well, I think in a very fitting way, verse 10 of our passage sets forth Hezekiah's own creed, his own sense of devotion. He says, it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel. That, that, that's what defines this man. And here was the key to the remarkable life of a great man of God, as well as his stunning success historically. His example shows us that when our hearts are filled with a faith that seeks after God according to his word, we can leave a lasting legacy. Many of us will find ourselves in family situations that may seem just as deplorable, as, as a nation of Judah, or we may in, be in political settings this way, or cultural settings, if we will have the covenant in our hearts and we will minister fervently and faithfully according to God's word, like, Ze- like Hezekiah, we may leave a lasting legacy. Well, the bulk of this chapter is given to detailing Hezekiah's restoration of worship with a cleansed priesthood and a cleansed temple. 
And I've been mentoring, mentioning the young king's great problems. The treasury was empty. The army was shattered. The people were corrupted. He's a vassal to a mighty empire. And we wonder, what can he do to restore the nation's fortunes? And Hezekiah's answer was worship. That was his answer. What, what can we do? We, we can worship the Lord publicly and fervently and faithfully and biblically. He reminds us that a worshiping truth, one that approaches the Lord, as Jesus put it, in spirit and in truth, is one that receives help from God and shakes the world in his power. Now, according to the chronicler, Hezekiah got busy reforming the worship of Jerusalem immediately upon rising to the throne. Look at verse 3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now that time stamp could refer either to the first month of his reign or it could be the first month of the first year that followed. It doesn't really make a difference. The point is his urgency was focused on reforming God's temple to cleanse the house of the Lord and restore the priesthood. And this burst of activity doubtlessly reflects the king's anguish in in her spirit before he was king. There wasn't much he could do other than pray and plan while his father is is bringing the idols in and committing apostasy and, and, and abominations, but he clearly grieved them. And he was thinking of what he would do when he became king. You know, you know how presidents today, uh, when they're campaigning, they will say, on day one in office, I will do this, this, and this. And they're, they're reflecting their priorities. Here's day one in office for King Hezekiah. Matthew Henry writes, His soul no doubt wept in secret for what had been going on. He vowed that when he would receive the congregation, he would redress these grievances. His priority lay in opening the house of the the Lord as soon as he could. Now this provides a good precedent for national leaders today. We we believe in the separation of church and state, of the, the the state, the church has its function. We're an institution. Actually, we're not an institution of the state. We're an institution of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the king or president here is welcome here as a sinner and as a believer sitting in the pews. That's, and, and there's no disrespect meant in that. And the, the king and the president has his function. But one of the duties biblically uh, of the secular government is to foster the opening of church doors an environment for public worship. And to do so is to promote every kind of blessing among the people. Our country was founded on that assumption and on that conviction. Moreover, Hezekiah reminds church leaders to care for the buildings where God's people meet for worship. I recently received a brochure from a Presbyterian church plant in Aberdeen, Scotland, that is raising money to purchase and restore one of the grand old church buildings in the heart of their city. I have to say, I love it when people are planning to do that. And they had a brochure. And it had all these pictures of grand houses, elegant houses of worship. These are spectacular buildings. And it points out, this one's an apartment building. This one's a nightclub. That one's a nightclub. That one's, a lot of them are nightclubs, sadly. That one's a restaurant. And and the pastor points out, at church buildings in that city. And of course, Aberdeen is a famous name of Presbyterianism in northern Scotland. But there now, the church buildings, he says, are relics of a bygone time, reflecting the popular consensus that God is a relic of a bygone time. 
Well, that church plant seeks to purchase and restore one such building. In fact, they're well on their way to doing so with a vision, they said, in the heart of the city to create a hub for expository preaching and biblical worship. I quote their brochure, to send the gospel into the future for generations to come to discover the wonderful works of God. Acts 2.11, how inspiring. Well, Hezekiah embraced a similar vision for his plan to reform the faith and practice of Jerusalem. Now, the king did know that the building would not accomplish much for the Lord without a consecrated ministry. And so he begins, this is the first section of the chapter, by summoning the clergy, verse 3. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east. Now he's addressing them as a true king of the house of David, and he urges them to embrace their calling as true priests of the line of Aaron and true Levites of the tribe of Levi. Their first priority then would be the consecration of their own lives and ministry. Look at verse 5. Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves. To consecrate means to make holy. It has the idea of commitment, but also of sanctification. They were to purify themselves ritually according to God's law. They were to remove every source of defilement. Yes, there was a ritual aspect of that. But more importantly, they were to sanctify their hearts and renew their commitment to serve the Lord wholeheartedly, each in the task that was given to them. Robert Murray Machane, speaking of Scotch Presbyterians, Robert Murray Machane famously remarked that a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Well, Hezekiah endorsed that view completely. And he insisted that God's holy work should be performed by holy men in accordance with God's holy word. Andrew Stewart writes, That is what God wants of his people today so that they can be a force for good in the world. Salt must be salty. Light must be bright. Consecrate yourselves. Paul laid down the same priority when he wrote to the Philippians, be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Philippians 2, 15 and 16. Now, it's for this reason that the New Testament insists on high moral and spiritual standards for those men called to serve in the ordained ministry. You'll find them in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. And yet this call to holiness of consecration extends to all Christians. And so if we long to see our nation reformed, if we want to see our churches renewed, and I think that's the fervent prayer of of every faithful Christian, the place to start is in our own repudiation of sin, our own devotion to God's word, our own recommitment. My friends, we need a recommitment to intercessory prayers. I, I often reflect, should the Lord tarry and historians write books, and they certainly will. They'll find our time fascinating and also distressing. And one thing they will note is while society was collapsing at an unprecedented pace, the people of God were disinterested in prayer, would not attend the prayer meeting, did not order their lives around prayer. Well, we must consecrate ourselves with the biblical habits of piety and godliness. Well, this urgency towards consecration was all the more urgent in view of the historical context. And Hezekiah explains this. Judah needed a holy priesthood because of the ungodly culture of the nation. 
Look at verse 6. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and have turned their backs. And so he notes that Judah, here's the problem, Judah is under God's judgment. And so the most urgent thing is this call to repentance and, and spiritual renewal. And the place for this to begin was in the temple. And he intended to reopen those precincts for sacred worship according to God's word. Look at verse 7. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place of the God of Israel. And so what he's calling for is the renewal of the preaching of the gospel. And you say, well, he didn't say gospel. He's talking about rituals. That was the gospel. The, 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 the lights had a meaning. The sacrifices were pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, the table of showbread. This was a picture of God's provision for his people. He wanted the preaching of the gospel to be renewed in the house of the Lord. And he took a God-centered view of the circumstances. And in this way, he reflects, he's a great representative of the theology of the, uh, of the whole book of Second Chronicles. Judah's failure, he knew, lay not in his economic policy. His first day in office didn't involve summoning an economic council. It wasn't that the army was poorly equipped and well-trained. He didn't call his chief of staffs in. No, he called in the Levites and the priests. Because the problem was God's severe opposition and judgment because of their idolatry and sin. Verses 8 to 9. Therefore the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, astonishment, and hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. He had a God-centered view of things. He, he saw them, and of course he's the king of the house of David. In Old Covenant Judah, it's particularly true. It's all always true in general it's particularly true for them it's all about their relationship to the lord now history records a number of great figures who have changed the world because they had this kind of clarity of vision in serving the lord we might think of martin luther and how at the council of worms he stood before the holy roman emperor and the curia of the roman catholic church and they demanded that he recant of his teachings or else the idea was he faced being burned alive at the stake. And Luther, you should read a good book on Luther and these events. He's fairly witty. He's sincere, a little tortured in his conscience. And he goes, you know, I've written some things in my books that were kind of, you know, over the top. But not when it comes to the word of God, he said. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. And, he, and God used that clarity of vision to change the world. You know, the Protestant Reformation really wasn't all about Martin Luther. There was a lot going on. That's how it always is. And yet this one man at this one hour, he laid down the clarity of vision that God used to change the world. I think of in the 20th century how Billy Graham energized a slumbering evangelicalism by barnstorming the, the country with clear, simple, fervent preaching about sin and forgiveness through the blood of Christ. Go back and download an early sermon of Billy Graham in some stadium while this earnest man of God is speaking plainly about sin and Jesus. And God used him in so many ways. Well, Hezekiah was this kind of man. 
And he stands before the assembled religious leaders of late 8th century B.C. Jerusalem. And he earnestly lays before, he lays his heart before them. He, he lays his commitment before them. He says, now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from them, from us. Verse 10. Now, he meant that he was resolved to restore the nation to God's blessing by reforming, repenting, and reforming its life and worship according to God's word. When he says, it's in my heart to make a covenant, he doesn't mean something new. It's not his fresh ideas about religion and spirituality. No, it's the old covenant arrangement given by God through Moses. And he wanted to restore heartfelt observance of God's ways and true faith. He was animated by a love for the Lord, and he opened his heart before them. And it was joined to a fear of God that understood the implications of faith versus unbelief. A century later, the prophet Jeremiah would speak in the same sort of way. Jeremiah 6.16, he says, stand at the crossroads. We stand at a crossroads. How many times? In our personal lives, in our corporate lives, sometimes church denominations stand at a crossroads. And which way we go will determine all. And Jeremiah says, look and ask for the ancient ways where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Renew the covenant in your heart. Hezekiah stood in the shoes of Joshua back in the dawn of Israel's possession of the promised land. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 15. Well, every pastor should follow Hezekiah's leading today in calling his congregation to a fervent devotion to God and his word. I've often commented at church conferences or in question and answers that how we define success defines who we are as a church. And we live in a generation that evangelical success is the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. And there's nothing wrong with any of them. Every one of I certainly like a, a full parking lot better than an empty one. And the buildings, we've already talked a blessing they are. We've got to have money to do these things, or, or the Lord normally uses them. And yet that is not how we define success. We must define success in fidelity to God and his word and his ways. And that fidelity includes a passion for prayer and evangelism. Every father, every mother should hold an open Bible before their children and make Hezekiah's declaration their own. It is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord. And we do that through regular attendance at a faithful church, through family worship in the home, through an obedient faith that follows God's ways in every area of life. Now, Hezekiah understood, however, that his own covenant conviction, as impressive though it was, was not going to be enough to turn Judah around. And that's why he summoned the priests and the Levites to join him in in a renewed consecration in pursuit of biblical reformation. And his appeal to them was personal and it was fervent. Verse 11, my sons do not now be negligent for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. See, he was only asking them to play the role that God had assigned to them. Matthew Henry comments, they were chosen not to be idle, not merely to enjoy the dignity while leaving the duty to be done by others, but they were to serve him and to minister to him. 
Well, this is our need today for pastors to preach faithfully, for elders to lead biblically, for deacons to serve lovingly and wisely, for church members to receive God's means of grace in fervent belief. A a church that follows Hezekiah's commitment can hope to be a force for good in the world. Indeed, if the Lord chooses, it can even change the world. Well, having called the priests and the Levites to consecrate themselves was only the first plank of Hezekiah's Reformation project. There's actually three things he's going to do. We're going to look at two of them tonight. The first was the consecration of the priests. The second was the cleansing of God's house. Verse 5, hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. And the Lord honored his faith by causing this message to strike home in the hearts of Judah's clergy. Immediately they set about to consecrate their persons, and then they busied themselves by removing the defilement of idolatry from the grounds of the the house of the Lord. In fact, we've seen the urgency of Hezekiah. The first month he did this. Well, they got right to it on the first day. Now, the record of the temple's cleansing is found in verses 12 12 to 19. And it starts in verses 12 to 14 with the name of the Levites who took charge of this. And they're organized by the historical clans of the tribe of Levi. First are the sons of the, of the clan of Kohath, Mahath the son of Amasai, and Joel the son of Azariah. Then came the descendants of Merari, Kish the son of Abdi, and Azariah the son of Jehalalel. After them were the Gershonites, they are Joah, the son of Zimah, and Eden, the son of Joah, followed by the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri, and Jewel, and the sons of Asaph. Those are singers, you know. Uh, Asaph was David's singer, and that became a, a, a group, a movement within the Levites. And so the musicians were involved. Zechariah, the choir's usually pretty good at serving the Lord in a lot of ways. And Zechariah and Mataniah make this list. Concluding the record were the Hemonites, Jehuel and Shimei, and the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah and Uziel. Now, these names may not exactly roll off our tongues, and their importance may seem lost to us. But these clans include those originally established under Aaron, each of them authorized to perform a certain work in God's house. And these listed clan names remind us of how their ancestors, their ancestors were present, most of them, back in 2 Samuel when David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to the the new house, the, the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And like these men then, Christians today, we have the privilege of carrying on the work that God's servants began in previous generations through biblical fidelity. We are and we should feel how we march shoulder to shoulder with the Protestant reformers, with the Puritans of the Westminster Assembly, with the church fathers of the second century, yes, with the apostles of our Lord Jesus. Andrew Hill points out a general message given in this list of names. He says the name list serves both to memorialize the contribution of key leaders in Israelite history and to remind the present audience that God's work is accomplished through the cooperative cooperative efforts of faithful individuals. It's actual people. It's actual people working together in a shared vision under godly leadership according to God's word. 
And one thing I love about older churches like ours are the plaques honoring the memory of eminent uh, servants of the Lord in previous days. I, I know it can be idolatry, but it is not necessarily idolatrous. To, to, for the church to say, we don't want to forget the life of this person. Uh, many of these men, uh, and some of the older members remember the names. Many of them I do not know, but I know some of them. They're Stuart Patterson's plaque. I can, I can see him here today. And, and we're carrying on. There's Paul Settle. I knew Paul Settle. So did you. And the work of the church is people. It's a community of people. And they work together. And, and, and there are some who stand out. And we carry on the work. We, we are in this way tangibly aware of what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 1. There is a cloud of witnesses surrounding us that we would run our race to the full. When we consider these Levites memorialized by the chronicler, we should realize that a small group of devoted believers can leave a great historical legacy. We may think of that band of young college students, fervent young men at Oxford University in the 18th century, and they called themselves the Holy Club. Yes, it was a little fundamentalistic in a bad way, and they weren't completely right, but they wanted to consecrate themselves to the Lord. And they began praying fervently. Some of their names were John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield, and they needed to be taught in, in different degrees, different degrees. They got there and they became great preachers. I will say this about the Wesleys. They preached justification through faith alone, and they preached it clearly. Uh, great George Whitfield was one of them. And you think how this little group of college students saying, we want to make a covenant with the Lord in our hearts. And, and they, they literally changed the history of Britain and America. America would not be the country it is now or was in our best days without the Great Awakening, which flowed out of those little dormitories in Oxford University. A few years ago, I was in Oxford. We have a church plant we support there. It's a great, great work. And first thing I did, I'm sure I'm not the only one, first thing I did when I went to Oxford was I made a beeline to Broad Street because there's an old cross, stones cross on Broad Street. And that's the spot where Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley in 1555, those faithful preachers, they consigned, they offered their own bodies to the flames rather than compromise the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I hope you remember what Latimer said to Ridley on that spot and that day. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. It has not been put out yet. And on a much less historical degree i suppose a, a lesser intellect international degree most of us can cite a small number of dedicated christians who decided they were going to serve the lord and we were saved as a result a group of people who began campus evangelism a man and a woman who started a family pastors in a church who banded together and out of the efforts of a small number of people, salvation has gone forth. Very much like the 14 names cited by the chronicler. This is how a group of women gathering for prayer in the neighborhood, a Sunday school class or a Bible study in the church, the gospel passes from one generation to the next. Well, these 14 Levites leading others, these were the leaders who followed them in their respective houses, they got busy in taking up Hezekiah's charge to cleanse God's temple. Look at verse 15. They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Now first we're told the priests went into the holy place. That's the, the inner room where the 
where the menorah lampstand was, the altar of incense was, and only the priests, the descendants of Aaron, could go in there. And so they began cleansing it, and the Levites hauled the junk down to the river that they would throw them away. Verse 16, the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. Now, Undoubtedly, this involves many idols, along with the many abominations that accompany that under the reign of Ahaz. And so they spent a week cleansing it all out. I suppose the Holy of Holies had to be cleansed as well. Undoubtedly, they also would have offered sacrifices. They would have sprinkled the atoning blood. There's a whole ritual process of consecrating the house of the Lord. And when they hauled it out, the Levites took it to the crash heap. All the doxological garbage that needed to be removed from the church. Much of that needs to be removed from the church today as well. Now, after eight days, the holy place was restored. And then they got to work on the outer courts and the chambers. On the eighth day of the month, they went, came to the vestibule of the Lord. Then for eight days, they consecrated the house of the Lord. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. Verse 17. Well, when 16 days of labor were completed, the temple building had been cleansed and the satisfied clergy presented themselves back in the presence of the king. Verse 18, they, then they went into Hezekiah the king and they said, we have cleansed all the house of the Lord. And see, this was just the beginning. The time had come to now restore it, to actually open it for its worship amidst the people. And this required the utensils and, and the showbread and all of these things. Verse 18, the altar of burnt offerings, all its utensils, the table for showbread, its utensils, and these were consecrated and set back in place. And they declared joyfully to Hezekiah all the utensils that Hezekiah, King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless. We have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Well, the worship of God was thus prepared to be restored. The means of grace would start flowing again in the life of God's people. And this is how the foundation was laid for everything that would be accomplished during the remarkable reign of King Hezekiah, all flowing from the renewal of the covenant of grace and the blessings that God gives. With the help of a good many godly friends, the commitment of King Hezekiah's heart was about to become a reality and hope would be restored for the people of God. Well, let me just make a few lessons drawn from this before we conclude tonight. And the first, we need to go back again and say we need to learn from Hezekiah the priority of the public worship of the people of God and the significance thereof. How greatly we need to see the churches preaching the word and, and the, 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 the few pews filled with people singing to the Lord and prayers offered, what a difference that can make in a city and in the world. The reality is that Christians who want to make a difference in their times, they must not engage in solo enterprises. No, they must give the, the priority to the worship of God through Jesus Christ in the congregation of God's people. There must be regular weekly worship. A few things can take the place of a, of a Christian, a new believer. I remember being a new believer. Uh, I was, when I was converted, I didn't know there was such a thing as the evening service. And the church I was at had one. I started going. And what a difference it made in my life to keep the Lord's Day. 
to do morning worship. And then often friends of mine would go to the park and somebody would bring a guitar and we'd, we'd, we'd eat lunch in Rittenhouse Square where I proposed to Sharon later uh, a year or so afterwards. And we would sing. Then we'd go back to the church for the evening service. And, and, and the rhythm of, of the worship of the Lord began creating a new direction in the interior of my life. This happened to so many people. And then participation in the life of a godly Bible-preaching church, there is nothing that can substitute for this priority. We're to give our gifts and tithes to support the worship and work of the church to the best of our ability. We're to use our spiritual gifts. I will tell you what a ministry it is to be a cheerful nursery worker in this church. I love to see a new member standing at the door there, handing out uh, bulletins to people. These things are important. Many people will say to me when they tell about the impact uh, of the pulpit or, or the public worship, but they'll talk about the difference that's made by cheerful Christians who took an interest. I, I will tell you, I hear it all the time, and I praise God for you because of it. People say, this is a church. You cannot come to this church without someone talking to you. These things are important. We, we, we together do all the work of the church in its public worship, in, in the ministry of the means of grace, and, and our, our, our work, our, our, our vitality centers, as Hezekiah understood, our ability to make an impact in the world centers on the public worship of the living God. Now, I understand, even as I preach tonight, I'm well aware I may be speaking tonight to more people online. I think I probably am. Usually I know that I'm preaching to more people online than I am in present. And I want to say then to our online community, we're glad you're watching Maybe you're watching live. Maybe you're going to download this service or worship service during the week. We're really glad we can do that. But I do pray, unless there's a, a real reason keeping you from doing it, that you would be physically present in a local church in the worship service. A lot of things are still going on. People have special medical needs. I, I respect that completely. But it's also true that habits are formed. Well, let's get back to the biblical habit. As much as we can. Let us worship physically in the house of the Lord. We cannot use our spiritual gifts from our living room outside of our immediate family members. We are not part in, in the way that we're supposed to be fully in the worship of the church unless we are present in the house of the Lord. Don't take that as a wrong accusation. We're glad you're listening. We're glad you're downloading. We want you to be blessed by God's word. We must recover the priority of personal public worship. Now, secondly, we see here the duty of church leaders, namely that of cleansing the house. This is the king of the house of David. He had a duty. These are the Levites who were given responsibility in different ways, together with the priests. And so also today, it is a duty of church leaders to remove everything that is contrary to God's word from the church that gathers in Jesus' name. We are to cleanse the house. Now, that means that worship is to be according to God's word. Now, we, we live in a church culture that assumes that if we like it, God must like it. The entirety of the Bible argues against that. Just ask Hophni and Phinehas. Go look them up, the sons of Levi, and see how their self-centered, seeker-sensitive worship practices worked out. The Lord slew them. No, no, worship that's acceptable to God is that which is ordained in his word. And we're to have reverent, fervent, joyful, biblically regulated worship. We must worship God according to his word. You see, as Calvin often pointed out, when we do this, we show forth God's sovereignty because we do his will in our worship. 
and not our own. I love how Calvin says, the mere fact that something in worship is appealing to us ought to make us suspicious. (laughs) The idol factory that is our hearts. We must have the warrant of God's word. The elders of the church must govern biblical worship. They must govern the doctrine of the church. It is not a narrow spirit to say we're not going to have error taught in the church. We're not going to have sub you know, sort of era taught in the church. We're going to have solid biblical meat taught. One of the things I love it in our, in our session meetings, I'm not even a part of the machinery of this other than to, to call the vote. But the Wicks are, will come and they'll ask for the approval of their books. Sunday schools will say, here's what we're studying. And the elders of the church, it's their duty to do so, to oversee the soundness of the doctrine, not to mention that of the pulpit. The commitment of the church to missions and the Great Commission, the elders are to do that. They're to oversee piety and morality. They're to oversee biblical ministry. This, by the way, is not always going to be popular. But it is necessary and essential. And the things of the world, particularly some of the things going on in evangelical churches today, probably do deserve to be called, in the words of the chronicler, filth. And it is the duty of church leaders to cleanse the house of the Lord, not in a petty, narrow spirit, in a spirit of biblical fidelity to Christ, understanding that what is truly spiritual is what is truly biblical. The way to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has written a book. That book is the word of God. And when we do things according to the Spirit's book, his writing, the Spirit of God, we have the Spirit's life and blessing. And that's the third point we see. Notice the care that things are done in this chapter according to God's word. It's in his heart to keep the covenant of the Lord. Where's he going to find out how to do that? He's going to find it in the prophets, in the law of Moses especially. It's, it's going to, the, the truth of these things are going to be determined in God's word. Worship is in spirit and in truth. Christ reigns in his church as and to the extent that his word is the rule and authority of that body of believers. I love how at the end of the passage, I think it's very significant, the priests present themselves to the king. That's what we do. We present our work to King Jesus and we do it according to his word. We seek his blessing because it is his rule. It is according to the word of God. And then, of course, we center the church on the teaching and believing of Holy Scripture. I think of the instructions that the Apostle Paul gave in his last letter, Second Timothy. Paul's about to die and things are bad. Read Second Timothy. Things are really bad. It's a time like Hezekiah's time. In some ways, Paul says in Second Timothy, "All Asia has abandoned me." You start that. You mean the Church of Ephesus has abandoned Paul? Uh, apparently, and Timothy's pastoring there, and it's just—it's this terrible situation. And what does Paul say? Is where does he start reforming and revitalizing this church? Listen to Paul's instruction in Second Timothy three fourteen to seventeen. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The sufficiency of the word of God to do the work of God by the power of God. And so Paul charges him, preach the word. 
Well, let me close by seeing in my mind's eye, not just Hezekiah cleansing the house of the Lord, but going forward quite a few centuries in John chapter 2 when our Lord Jesus came to the same city. He came to the same place. And I dare say it was not in a narrow religious spirit that Jesus went to the temple and he cleansed the house of the Lord. He cleansed it of politics. Many of our churches need to be cleansed of politics. He, he cleansed it of business. Nothing wrong with business. But he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And, and the, 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 the Pharisees came to him and says, what gives you the right to cleanse the house of the Lord? And you remember how Jesus answered in John two nineteen, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That reminds us that the true temple is Christ, Christ together with his people. And it's this covenant blessing that we renew as we gather for worship in the church. It's not just the institution. It's not just the form of worship. It's Christ and his body joining together in the world and God dwells in our midst and he dispenses the blessings of heaven and he gathers sinners to hear a message of salvation so they are forgiven and redeemed. It's this temple the body of Christ, worshiping together, proclaiming God's gospel of salvation. This is how the heirs of Hezekiah take up the work of reformation today. This is how we experience the hope of revival for ourselves and for our children and God willing for our nation. With God's covenant in our hearts, yes, this is how we hope to change the world. Father in heaven, we thank you for this interesting chapter the wisdom it gives. But Father, it's all only makes a difference because you dwell in your people. And you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to be among us and to be God with us, Emmanuel. And he, you meet with us in your son. And so we pray, Lord, that you would make the worship of our church come alive. We cannot make it come alive. You give it life through your Holy Spirit. And cause us, each in the role that we have, to reflect on how this passage would exhort and encourage us. But, oh, Lord, would you come to us in our covenant renewal as we seek you in the spirit of true faith. Oh, Lord, give life. Oh, revive us. Oh, Lord, use us in these dark times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.